0: It. You're listening to com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Your host, Elizabeth Wharton, and while I am an attorney with the law firm of Paul B. Smith, Buzz Off is not legal advice. Instead, it is a weekly look at the technology surrounding drones, the Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, and all the buzz in between. So, with that, welcome back. And for those who are joining us live, this is our first show since as I like to call it the holiday hiatus. And right before the break, we had been talking about uh, law enforcement use of social media and so that publicly available information. And you can't start off a new year without one. Having a little bit of a crystal ball prediction of what's ahead for technology, and then two, we're today's show. We're going to look at some of the uh, what's to come in the crystal ball predictions for drones, and where we see states taking that, and then looking at the law enforcement and social media from a different perspective, looking at where this is going from the individual user and we'll have two attorneys joining the show so always fear when you have lots of attorneys getting together because no good can come so the first guest is a attorney I've gotten to know through the various drone law activities and he is the host of his own radio show drone law today and recent published author of the state drone law state laws and regulations on unmanned aircraft systems so with that uh Stephen hogan from ausley McMullen, welcome to the show uh,
0: be there.
1: and i hope and the other thing is coming back to a radio show after a hiatus uh, technology is not always our friend so hopefully Stephen will be joining us momentarily because you can't look at where you're going with drones. I mean we've heard everything from autonomous uh, deliveries to the presents under the Christmas tree. I mean we are about four months into the FAA's new rules and State legislators, legislatures are kicking off uh, for the most part in the next couple of weeks, and you got to know where you've been to know where you're going. So, Steve, have you been able to join us on, oh, and not yet, in my defense, uh, I am not always the most tech savvy, but in any case, uh, Steve and his co-author, uh, Richard Doran, looked at the state of affairs and, and drone laws in every state. So, Steve, is third time the charm? Should be. With you joining us? or And knowing my luck, I've got my headset and microphone on, and given today, probably backwards. No, he should be
2: on. Let uh, Steve, can, uh, can you hear us? Let's see. Steve.
1: Well, we will wait for Steve to be able to join us so we can talk about some of their findings. I thought it was interesting. Not every state has tackled the issue. Some states, when they've tackled the issue, have uh, taken the direct approach. Others, it's kind of been a roundabout roundabout look at uh, the underlying technology, which is always the better way in my opinion to go if you chase the technology itself the means then you'll always be chasing but if you try to proactively look at what the underlying issue is then and legislate or regulate towards that then you'll have a better chance of success, so Liz,
0: we'll see. And oh, ah, yeah, there, there
1: we go. Welcome, Steve. Because otherwise, I was going to run out of things to talk about and extolling the virtues of your book without being able to talk with the famed author himself.
0: Oh, oh thank, hey, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, you know, technical difficulties happen. They've happened on uh, my podcast, which I think you were talking about, drone lot today and uh we're just we're just glad that we have this technology uh where we can talk and speak about these difficult things that uh, are impacting high technology out there. So um I'm happy to be on today and thanks for inviting me on.
1: Well, absolutely. And thank you for undertaking the heavy lifting and looking at all of the states. I mean, did were there trends that popped out? I mean, I had noticed that some of the states have taken this up. Some You still want to go, oh, bless your heart, I don't think you get it yet, and others, but what was the most intriguing uh, trend or legal approach that popped out to you when you were putting all this together for the book?
0: Sure sure and and thank you for that and I think uh, you know, when, when I was trying to get on there, I, I heard you speaking a little bit uh, uh, about about the book, so let me just recap what it is. What we did is um, we and not just me but um, me along with. The, uh, the law clerks that we've, we have in here, We're located, our law firm's located in Tallahassee, Florida, which is where Florida State University College of Law is. That's my alma mater. And we always have uh, young enterprising uh, law clerks rolling through here, and sometimes they have time on their hands where they're not doing billable work. And we use that time to have them go research the laws and regulations governing drone technology in all 50 states. And that took the better part of last year, and we zipped it together into this book that um, your listeners are free to download for free at dronelawtoday.com forward slash book. That's dronelawtoday.com forward slash book. They can grab a free copy of that and the book that I published a couple years back. But what what this book does is it focuses on all 50 states, and we tell you whether or not a state had a drone law, because some of the states don't have drone laws. So we... We said that where it was applicable. Well
1: and how did y'all quantify or qualify when something applies to drones or or not? I mean, we've got the you've got the focus obviously on the aerial vehicles, but did you look at the road, earthbound earth uh more of the autonomous cars or is that is that in the second uh volume? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's probably another law firm's volume, frankly. Um, that's a good question. The way that we approached it is looking specifically for the term drones or unmanned air um, aircraft or uh, unmanned uh, aircraft systems or unmanned aerial vehicles. Variations on that theme. What we didn't want to do was um, restate whatever aviation general aviation uh, laws were on the books in the various states. Because, as we know, the FAA considers drones to be aircraft, right? So it's a given that those laws would apply. I mean, for instance, Florida has some various laws governing aviation here and there. Um, We didn't do that. That's not what this book is. What we're focused on is specifically the um, unmanned um, aircraft systems, drones, uh, how those devices specifically have been dealt with by state legislatures e- either at the level of a statute passed by the legislature or a regulation passed by a state government uh, agency so that's what this book is and to answer um, your your initial question there what trends we saw well of course you see some states taking a very um, intensive, regulatory approach. I mean, you see that uh, Tennessee comes to mind as one of the most uh, complicated. <laughs>
1: well, I'm surprised they beat out North Carolina. I mean, North Carolina, I feel like, tries to jump in there as often as possible.
0: You got it. I mean, North Carolina requires licenses. Uh, exactly.
1: I mean, you, you've got to get double licensed, double barred, I guess. Uh, but yeah. so, so Tennessee has taken the cake so far, huh?
0: Uh, at least as far as volume. But from a conceptual level, here's something that I've noticed that um, I'm sure you'll appreciate and uh, the law geeks out there will appreciate, but uh, I'm not sure many people out there in the industry really, uh, really perceive yet, and that's this. Generally, you have two approaches to drone regulation at the state level. I'm going to call them a permissive approach to drones, you know, drone-friendly, or a restrictive approach drone unfriendly sort of approach, right? And at first glance, you might think that the drone permissive way of regulating drone technology would be better for the industry, right? Because those are states, um, Texas is an example, where the, the legislature goes in and says, hey, we like drones. Here are every, Here is a bunch of stuff that you can do with drones, okay? And literally a list of things that you can do, and that looks nice, right? But then you have states like, frankly, Florida, um, that have a a um, prohibitionist. I <laughs> say <saying> they
1: have <laughs> the naughty
2: approach.
0: Yeah, yeah, the naughty. I was searching for a good word, and you you pull out naughty there. That's perfect. Um, that, that says no drones for this stuff. Okay, you can't use a drone for X, Y, Z, blah, 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 and carving out exceptions. Okay. Now the issue that I've conceptually come across is this in a state with a prohibitionary approach, a naughty drone (laughs) approach.
1: Yes, when drones are Uh, on the naughty list.
0: Yeah, when drones are on the naughty list, it's pretty clear from a conceptual level that as long as what you want to do as the drone operator is not on the naughty list, then you're golden, right? But if you're in the uh, drone-friendly regulatory regime like in Texas, if you have a drone usage, that a drone entrepreneurial idea that you think of, that you want to do, and that is not on the list of approved drone stuff, then the question is, is that list that's in the state statutes, is that an exclusive list or an inclusive list?
1: So uh, really, those states, as I say, so those states are shutting down the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, you can't think out of the box. It's a set at least, box.
0: At least, at least potentially. And, you know, I'm... I've, I've got friends over uh, practicing in drone law in Texas, and we've had a couple of them on the podcast at Drone Law Today, and it certainly not wasn't the intention of the Texas legislature to restrict drone entrepreneurialship, but I think that is an unintended consequence of that sort of approach of listing all, all the ideas that you think you can do with a drone, because the minute that an entrepreneur comes up with something that's not on the list, which as we know is absolutely the case in the drone industry, I mean, that's where all the creativity is going, then you may have potential problems. So that's one thing that popped up that I don't think many people are looking too hard at yet.
1: Well, and one of the things we certainly dealt with uh, in Georgia last year during session was and they had pulled, uh, I'd say copied from, but to some extent that's not a bad concept if the underlying legislation got it right. But they looked to other states, pulled samples from their uh, statutes, and it's, you know, the game of telephone. Once someone starts to get, you know, prohibit pictures, and pictures are considered images and images or anything on the electromagnetic spectrum, you start going down these rabbit holes where you've just banned my now famous Millennium Falcon uh, replica drone, and you've made it a felony nine different ways, and potentially banned my Apple Watch that is emitting signals and communicating through RF. I mean, were there trends to that degree where you said, "Okay, this state got it right, but nobody really picked up on that," or? Hey, this is great. We saw this carried out. You know, this this was a good provision that got carried through with m- across multiple states.
0: Well, oh, that's a that's a great question, and uh, I would say that the. The general area of state drone regulation is still so new that um, it's hard to chart trends as far as who's copying who and and what's good and what's not. I will generally say, though, that um, from my personal opinion, the state that got it most right, from my perspective, of course, um, so I'm, I'm just owning this opinion, people can feel free to disagree with me, is the state of Alaska. And it's, it's less to do with the specific uh, regulations on the book and more about the holistic way that they approached it, where they got a bunch of stakeholders together and not in a way that, um, you know, state and federal governments tend to do that, which is let's get a bunch of people in a, in a room so nothing happens, okay? That's not what Alaska did. They had a real task force. That really uh, that their legislature really listened to, and they coupled um, their drone regulations with a public education campaign that was the best I've ever seen about here's how you use uh, drones safely and efficiently and all that so oh there I was
1: gonna say their guidelines with some of them uh, some of the cartoon illustrations
0: exactly uh, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh,
1: yes, we should, We both tip our hats to that working group. Uh, absolutely. Now, what about uh, some of that? I mean, because from my perspective, and if uh, listeners are curious, you can go find Alaska's. I mean, they put everything out there publicly available. Um, search for it, or I'm sure uh, Drone Law Today has probably linked to it at some point in the past, but. We're going to jump to a commercial break and we get back talk about some of our favorites from that. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio.
3: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
0: This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love.
3: On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com.
0: You're listening to America'sWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening,
1: and welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Today we are chatting with two of my favorite attorneys, and right now chatting with Stephen Hogan, uh, who is founder and Host of drone law today and co-author of the state drone law, I'd say handbook guide bible. I mean, y'all really put some time and effort into this, Uh, but so well done. And before the break, we had been chatting with or chatting about trends and some of them, giving a tip of the hat to Alaska's approach, and really, you know what in addition to all the stakeholders they brought together with their did you have a favorite from the uh recommendations they pulled out and put together
0: uh, you know not off the top of my head but uh, i did want to raise another uh, another good thing that i've seen or, or something that i think is good uh with with regard to the various state approaches and that's state level preemption of local ordinances and what i mean by that is um you saw you see this in maryland and um i've you know off the top of my head I don't remember if there's another state I think there is uh, Arizona certainly tried to put this in into uh, into place in the 2016 uh, legislative session but it didn't pass if I remember correctly and what state level preemption of local ordinances means is that the state legislature determines that local localities municipalities cities counties whatever uh, cannot um, start enacting municipal municipally specific drone regulations because I mean if you think there is a problem with 50 states a 50 state patchwork of um, state regulation of something that is uh, to a large extent already regulated at the federal level I mean you can think of the federal and state preemption issues then just imagine overlaying another even more granular patchwork uh, with with cities and municipalities uh, and counties having uh, different Different rules depending on where you are, and Liz, I know where you are up in Atlanta. I mean, you're tripping across uh, municipal and <laughs> and civic borders without even knowing it. Oh, so, yeah. uh yeah. So, I think I think that's that's a real issue, and that's not a value judgment on whether or not um, municipalities should be able to uh, regulate drones in their in their municipalities based on, you know, nuisance law or what have you, but just a recognition of the practicality problems that you get when you're trying to foster an industry statewide and you have all sorts of local ordinances that nobody knows how to look up anyway.
1: Well, exactly. And you don't even know, especially when you're talking about airspace, when you have entered one counties or another, because even with some of the... High tech mapping software and uh, AirMap.io is one of the ones that I've used, and different programs—they don't necessarily give you that alert of "Oh, oh, now you are—you're in Fulton County. Nope, now you're in DeKalb County, Georgia." It's not easy, and especially too when you get down to Florida. I mean, it's the coast. If you want to use a, a drone for you know, surveying and, and keeping an eye out for sharks along the coastline, you may have several counties working together uh, for lifeguards and to say, oh, we, nope, we have to go this way, around that. I mean, you, you raise a very valid point. Now, do you see there being a shift this year? Do you think more uh, counties, now that we have the Part 107, the FAA's, you know, taking their forays into the rules. Do you think we'll see more counties perking up or more states jumping in and saying, oh, yep, oh, counties, FAAs got this?
0: I think it really depends on how much of a voice the industry, the the commercial drone industry, decides to have. And I and I use the word decide to have very deliberately. Because we live in a country where your voice can be heard. We have a representative government and representatives that are... Responsive when their constituents raise a ruckus. And it's not just a matter of, uh, you know, staging demonstrations or whatever. I mean, that's that's maybe good at getting attention for yourself and blocking someone else's effort, but it's rarely useful for pushing a discrete uh, agenda. What I think the commercial drone industry needs to do is put on its big boy pants and go lobby, go actually get professional lobbyists to go lobby, and I say this as somebody who is not a professional lobbyist. I respect that profession greatly, and um, I think anybody who really knows what lobbyists actually do and the full-time job that it actually is um, will will appreciate that point of view. If you if you're not cognizant though of what that process is and how much. Um, expertise you're really getting when you hire a lobbyist who knows everybody who's in the in the seats of power and knows how, they're, uh, how they think and who's friends with who and you know who's, uh, who doesn't like who and what, what's on the agenda and how to slip your thing through and what's definitely not going to happen. I mean, that is what you pay for and that is absolutely what the commercial drone industry has to do on a state-by-state basis. Otherwise, you're going to continue getting reactionary laws that are passed by people who may not understand the drone industry at all, other than the fact that their grandkid is flying one.
1: Well, and I was uh, saying, you bring up this other aspect that is so key. It's, it's an understanding of both the the aviation issues, of the airspace issues, but also the technology. I mean, the drone aircraft we're using today is not the same as what was used back in World War two or uh, even last year and it's certainly not what's going to be used tomorrow or next week I mean the innovations are kind of rolling out quickly how how do you educate the legislators on that as an industry?
0: Um, I think there are several ways to do that um, number one is to hire lobbyists, that <laughs> will carry the messages to the... So uh, you're
1: saying uh, hire a professional lobbyist. Is that I'm is absolutely. that the take? Excellent.
0: <laughs> I'm absolutely saying that. And I think um, when you get companies that are serious companies to pool their resources and just do it, it has to happen. Otherwise, the industry is constantly going to be playing defense from a position of not really knowing what the real game is. And I think that's a game you're destined to lose. So I think that's number one, and for the, from the uh, the individual hobbyist side of things, you know. So of course I'm focused on where my clients are, and that's in the uh, in the commercial drone space, commercial drone companies, and uh, companies that want to integrate drone services into their um, into their existing business models. But from a hobbyist level, I mean, you cannot sit back and depend on the AMA because. They're not going to do anything in your And state. the AMA it is,
1: is the Model company. Aircraft uh, Association. Right. So those those That's are the correct. hobbyists That's in the large
0: part. In hobbyists, they care about the drone industry uh, being as unfettered as possible, which I guarantee they are. All you got to do is get your buddies at the club where you're flying, the people that you fly with, the people you already run Facebook groups with, to focus in on this and have educational campaigns. A great way to do that, frankly, is International Drone Day, which um, I, I don't know for a fact that uh, the, the folks behind that drone show on YouTube are going to still be pushing that. they pushed that the past couple of years. Um, if you start a, um, an International Drone Day thing in your locality, uh, in years past, they've given you a full media package to show you how to do it. So that's a good way to jumpstart this sort of effort.
1: Well, and so how do you kind of bridge that gap? Because not, a, as you pointed out, the hobbyists have one goal; the commercial operators have another goal, perhaps. And then, a uh, kind of teasing into the next guest on the show: uh, What about the individual privacy constitutional rights? You know, the Recipients of the data, the people whose data and images may be collected—kind of the users, beneficiaries of the technology. How do we? How do we balance all of that?
0: Liz, if I knew the answer to that, I think I I would be uh, some kind of super genius. Well, you are,
1: uh, which is (laughs) why you know.
0: (laughs) Well, too kind, too kind. But as I am, I am principally a litigator uh, here in Tallahassee, and. If, if I've learned anything from litigating cases, it's that you've got to stay humble about what you think is true in the world because you may be proven wrong. And that's why anytime I couch the, these issues, these policy issues, um, uh, whenever I talk about them, I couch them in terms of a conversation. It has to be a conversation. I don't know what's best for everybody, and neither does anybody else. The only way that we get to the answers to these things is to have open, fact-based, honest um, conversations about what could the answer be? What might the answer look like? What might some problems be with a a position that someone has just articulated? And not like, oh, that person has something that I disagree with in their position, so I'm going to uh, ignore them forever. I mean, that's just silly. It has to be a conversation because everybody has a perspective, and the best arguments will win out in the end.
1: Well, and you've certainly done your part in bringing the legal issues and raising the discussion with Drone Law today. How can folks find out more about the, your podcast and learn more? And you mentioned they can also download the book.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, all the information about the podcast is at DroneLawToday.com, and they can get uh, a copy of the State Drone Laws book at DroneLawToday.com forward slash book. And they can also check out our law firm, uh, which is Ausley McMullen in Tallahassee, Florida. We serve clients uh, throughout Florida and the southeast, and with regard to our drone practice nationwide. And that website is com. That's A-U-S-L-E-Y.com.
1: Well, and so what, if we have one kind of parting thought for the last minute of the show, what do you expect to see as one of the updates for next year? If you had to look into your crystal ball, what do you anticipate will be one of the things you'll have to add to the book?
0: (laughs) Well, i tell you, the the only constant... Uh, in the drone industry from a legal perspective in the years that we've been doing this this work has been changed. So I can guarantee that things will change in 2017.
1: Well, there you go. Well, thank you for all that you've done and continue to do. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio.
3: Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze.
0: host of the Home Defense Show on America's oh Web Radio. Join me every um, week for a full hour no, of all the uh, best and latest information on how then. you can get the sure, skills and the equipment you need Twitter, to protect uh, the ones that you love. Like,
1: oh.
3: 45 years of experience <laughs> is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience
0: will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. Catch us live each Wednesday from 2 to 3 Eastern on America's Web Radio, or find the podcast uh, on Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes. Look for Lawyer Liz. And so we kicked off the show with Stephen Hogan, giving us a little bit of where we've come and where we're going when it comes to technology, law, and drones, and If you've been watching any of the news or listening, the next kind of crystal ball predictions are coming from the Amazon Echo or Alexa. And some of the other IoT devices that may have been under your Christmas tree or other holiday presents, those are starting to get noticed and picked up By that, I mean the data, the information that's being collected has kind of hit hyperdrive of how law enforcement and other lawyers are looking to use that information. And so who better to join me than, as I like to call my favorite constitutional scholar, criminal defense, public defender, and all around uh, thought provoker, Catherine Bernard. So Catherine is an attorney here in Georgia welcome to the show
2: thanks so much for having me Liz
1: and if you haven't ever followed any of Catherine's musings insights you have a group on Facebook or a page if I'm correct that is a really good forum to get an idea of how you approach some of these issues what how can listeners find out more about that
2: they are welcome to check out my Facebook pages. It's Catherine Bernard, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E. You can follow my public posts on my personal page, or check out my public page that has a little bit more original content. Uh, like you, you can like the America's Rev- Web Radio link to this show. There you go. And
1: you know, the discussion's going to get off to a good start when Catherine was afraid I did not have a copy of the Constitution handy. So she brought me a new one. But as Dave Manor and Rob Graham can attest to during uh, our, what should have been very social dinners and whips Liz with her copy of the Constitution to say, oh, no, 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 we can answer that question right here. So, fasten your seatbelts. Uh, 2017 is going to be, is off to a wild privacy ride so far. I mean, Catherine, have you seen some of these stories where it's uh, law enforcement in this, in one of the cases I was reading about, it was a 2015 uh Murder and that occurred at a private residence. And they've identified that there was, I believe it was an Alexa um, home assistant that may or may not have been recording or listening in during the time of the murder. And so they've said, Up, we want that. I mean, 2016 was the year of we want your iPhone. Now they want our Alexa data too. Have you been following any of these cases?
2: Yes, and it's been very interesting to see how much play this case regarding the Amazon Echo home device, which it, it's one of these devices that you can tell it how to change the temperature, you can tell it how to control some of the smart devices in your home, you can ask it questions, it can get you sports scores, basically a pretty useful device, but anything that is going to be triggered by voice control could go, go into listening mode really at, at any time. So indeed, the case you're talking about was a murder, and you know it's being reported as kind of you know, is Amazon going to turn over the data? Well, there's no question. Amazon has already turned over the data. And what's interesting is that they didn't turn over data from their own servers. What they apparently turned over was information about the suspect's account that then the police were able to use to access his records. And I think that brings up some pretty important questions of, you know, what exactly are your privacy rights with a device that is operating in your home, basically seeing everything that's going on. Does that just mean you completely sacrifice every scrap of privacy?
1: Well, on the one hand, having access to, constant access to IMDb and some of the other, it will cut down on the number of arguments. I mean, you can establish right away the last time uh, Tom Cruise or you know other movie stars played that role. But at the same time, I don't know that I, I want law enforcement knowing How many times I've Googled certain things or perhaps, I mean, no one needs to know about my addiction to certain gossip websites or anything like that. I mean, and all of that's fair game. I mean, they're not disseminating or uh, kind of siphoning through that information, are they?
2: No, it it really seems that the rule is that everything is fair game at this point. In fact, uh, many of the cell phone providers have created their own special portals, these very elaborate programs that are specifically allowing just police officers to get access to individual, you know, account information, locations of phones. So, if it's on if it's on Google it is subject to a subpoena so it's really one of these things we're going to have to sort of radically redefine our notion of privacy once information is transmitted over these third party providers that then it, it's in their control and they can decide whether or not to give it to in, over in response to a law enforcement subpoena
1: well in in the show we did prior to the holiday hiatus I just love saying that because it makes it sound so formal and fancy. But, uh, Nick Selby was the guest and Nick was outlining, he is a law enforcement officer in Texas and some of the public information that law enforcement has access to because it's public. You've put it out there, you've announced it, and there's a, there's a distinction between that and perhaps what you've done in your own home and not necessarily anticipating and you know shame on you for not realizing that every google search or other you know, thing that you do is going to be retrievable but there's there's a difference in some of that and also i mean from a your position as a criminal defense attorney it's not a level playing field is it
2: no, And I think there is this idea, and in fact, it's been a part of our jurisprudence for a long time, that you do have special protections in your home. However, as a matter of practice, those protections are being eroded at every level. You have uh, warrantless searches of vehicles. You know, it used to be that you had to get a warrant before searching anyone's vehicles. Now, I, I don't think I can remember the last time somebody got a warrant to search a vehicle. It's just considered routine. We're also seeing a rise in, you know, judges signing these search warrants selections electronically which you know brings uh, it, it's like you actually wish for the rubber stamp because it meant that the judge actually would have physically looked at and stamped the document so we're we're looking at a world really where these traditional ideas about the Fourth Amendment in practice just aren't holding up you know a lot of officers are making the calculation that well you know if we get something you know who cares if it's if it's um, you know, thrown out later, we're still possibly going to be able to get this person arrested, you know, do further investigation, find something that we're going to be able to use against them. So it's, you know, again, we, we do have this traditional distinction between the home and the rest of the world. But as a practical matter, our phones, you know, that we carry into our homes, those have microphones, those have cameras, that's information that is potentially subpoenaable. So I really see this uh, Amazon Echo Alexa case as not not something that's brand new and different in character, but really just the logical evolution of, you know, you've got an Xbox Connect, you've got a smart TV that's looking at what's going on in the room. You know, you already have devices in your home that are conducting this kind of surveillance and that information has already become accessible to law enforcement in several cases.
1: Well and the FTC has even come down on Samsung for their smart TV, saying you didn't exactly tell everyone, you know, you need to cut it off or give them an option, tell them what information is being collected, tell the homeowners. And uh, I want to blame Barbie, but I think it was actually a different uh, doll manufacturer that uh, in addition to just being creepy that your doll may be listening to your child's conversations, but selling that information to marketers. And of course, it's all stripped out so that there's no personally identifiable information. But it's not a, it's not as obvious anymore i mean there's there's a big difference between walking out your front door saying something you know you've crossed that threshold from your door to the outside world as you've noted it, that that distinction is gone
2: Right, because as we have these devices that we have to be able to talk to in order to get the functionality that we desire, you know, we are making trade offs about our own privacy at that point. You are putting information from inside of your home into the hands of third parties, and there are certainly government officials all across the country who are arguing that you have willingly given up your expectation of privacy by purchasing one of these devices. And in fact, you know, if, if we look at this from kind of the larger philosophical perspective, which of course you know we constitutional lawyers love to do you know this this really is a question of can can we shut this off you know just like the the drone legislation that you were discussing with the earlier guest you know is this something that we can regulate and prevent companies from using data that we willingly give to them you know should this be an issue that's between the consumer and the an amazon or c- the consumer and an apple for you know that one of the apple watches Or is it something that the government should be stepping in? And I I think it's a little odd that, you know, we have on one hand the FTC stepping in to say, oh, you know, Samsung, please be careful with this data. You know, we want to restrict your use of this data. But then, you know, the NSA has been illegally surveilling American citizens for years. That's actually a fact. You know, nobody is disputing it. The NSA is just disputing the means by which we came across confirmation of this information. So really, it's not these companies that I'm most worried about. It's the government having ultimate access to everything these companies collect, regardless of their agreement with the consumer. Well, it's like in sneakers, no more
1: secrets. I mean, it, and if you watch, and I don't know if you have, I, in our house, we watch it, the Honest Trailers. And they did a review of Watch Dogs 2, which we've highlighted on the show before. And, you know, kind of in a world where, everything you do is under constant surveillance by the government and private entities. And as they go through this description of the show or the game, they say, so basically, today, now. I mean, it sounds like you you agree with those reviewers and part of what they were trying to highlight with Watchdogs too, is today, it exists. We're just constantly, you know, smile, you need to be camera ready.
2: Right, and I think the answer to this isn't to roll back the availability of these exciting devices that, you know, open up the way we can interact with the world. It's to look at what our government is focused on criminalizing. You know, there's the case where Fitbit data actually showed that a woman had made up a rape claim. And I think a lot of us would say, well, that's great. You know, we don't want anybody subjected to a false accusation. So it's true that the information being gathered can sometimes be used for good purposes, but a vast amount of it is being used for prosecuting the drug war going after people for you know very questionable financial circumstances that you know somehow only warrant investigation once you become a political enemy of somebody powerful so you're seeing a lot of this investigatory power deployed not for, you know, legitimate public safety goals of, you know, let's catch a murderer or let's catch a rapist. You know, it's being deployed against people who are, you know, behaving peacefully, people who are not not doing anything except, you know, possibly crossing the wrong folks. Well, and you bring up a good point that we will delve into
1: in our next segment after this commercial break is, What happens when that information has been used and the reliability of it? And as a defense attorney, how easy it is for you to combat the presumption of, well, if this is what the data says, this must be accurate. But you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio.
2: Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Help this non as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today.
0: Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com.
3: This is Skip Coriel host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare. And learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. This is America's the best in chat radio designed just for you. Off
1: with Lawyer Liz, and I'm your host, Lawyer Liz, talking now with Calvin Bernard. And we are looking at what happens when privacy has gone out the window and law enforcement and others, even other attorneys, have. And third parties want to get your data from your devices, and it's a subject we have looked at before on the Buzz Off Show, and of course, shameless plug: catch up with past episodes on AmericasWebRadio.com, iTunes, Lawyer Liz Show, and other sources. But in particular, Catherine has to battle this kind of issue every day in her law practice because she is a defense attorney and even more so, she is a public defender. So, it, what you see on LA law kind of shows, I mean, it, you're not your everyday practice, Catherine. It's not in these uh, tall skyscraper glass and marble buildings in your high back, level chair. It, You are having to fight the good fight with a limited budget and running from courthouse to courthouse across the state in this case. I mean, when you have law enforcement or the the case against your client includes technology aspects, what do you do?
2: I think that's the ongoing question for a lot of us. Uh, The Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers recently hosted a technology seminar down at Georgia State where we talked about a lot of these issues, actually heard from one of the attorneys on the Ross-Harris trial about some of the very serious problems with the data that the officers brought in there. And, I mean, I think the answer is we just try to learn as much as we can. And personally, I think that the GBI, you know, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, needs to make its forensic – Information available to the defense side as well. You know they've started seeing themselves as merely an arm of the prosecution rather than an agent for getting to the truth. And you know I've I've been told when I've when I've gone to them you know as a public defender where they have just turned over some data to us and I've you know tried to ask them some questions and some of them have flat out told me you know I only talk to prosecutors. You'll have to go through the prosecutor. And I, I'm thinking. You know, I'm a public defender. I'm trying to get to the truth. You know, certainly I'm not going to sit here and ask you to help me make up a crazy story to show my client was somewhere that he wasn't. But I'm just asking you, can you tell me where these phone numbers show that these people would be for the case? You know, it seems like this is information that the prosecutor and, and everybody would want to know. So I think I think that's one answer is that we can have prosecutors and law enforcement stop treating their side as, you know, well It's our strategy. It's whatever we need to do to win. The data should be the data. Exactly. The data should be accessible to everybody who's participating in the case.
1: Well, and one of the things that if you haven't, if listeners haven't already read a series of articles uh, by Cash Hill uh, for the Fusion publication, where it looked at some of the issues behind geolocational data that, you know, Find My Phone It's not always accurate, and in some cases, MaxMind's database, they guessed because they weren't anticipating that you were going to use, or you being users of their data feeds weren't going to look at them for 100% accuracy. It was only supposed to drill down to a zip code. So find my phone says the phone was in this location at a certain time, and it's not correct, if it took some you know, great tech minds to figure out this issue, how does a regular public defender who may not be tech savvy know when to question it?
2: I, I mean, that's that's the ultimate question. You know, it is very difficult to be able to identify this information and delve into it with the you know with the detail that it requires.
1: Well, Nick even raised on the last show uh, the need for increased budgets absolutely on both sides of the spectrum or on both sides of the scales that not only do prosecutors need access to this information to get it right, but the defense side needs to know what's being relied upon and just as with breathalyzers and radar guns, you know, being able to question the accuracy of that. I mean, have you seen a shift in uh, the defense bar uh, of paying attention to these issues and working together to pool resources or
2: identify
1: ways to help Defendants.
2: Oh, definitely. It's it's something that everybody is concerned about. Text messages make or break many cases, and in fact, you should always treat a text message as you know something that it could ultimately be public because it will oh dear. make a, a permanent record of that conversation. But I I like to look at the good in this, which is you know as a public defender, again, it's not my job to you know make up a crazy story for someone who's actually done something bad. You know, I'm trying to you know get to the truth in these cases and help the people whose rights actually have been violated. And so I, th- I think there are a lot of folks who, you know, we, we need to orient our thinking about prosecution and defense a little differently. And I don't want to get too far afield from the, the law and technology topic. But again, when we treat it as, you know, oh, these are just two sides going at each other, you know, that's, that's not the model. The model is the government is going after a person, and that person has the right to have counsel to defend him or herself. And so I think, you know, this attitude of where prosecutors will sometimes hide the ball on this data, it, it comes from, you know, we're forgetting that it's a big deal to use the might of the government to investigate somebody. And that's one reason the surveillance has made it very casual and easy to just collect massive amounts of data on individuals. And I think it's really just making it clear we have got to reexamine what you know, now that we know government's going to have a lot of this data, there's just not a way to encrypt all of it or keep it away from them. You know, what do we want government to be doing with it?
1: When well, you brought up the Ross Harris uh, trial, and some of that certainly, at least what was presented publicly dealt with his, you know, alleged Google searches, that when you drilled down into it from a, a casual observer not certainly not one who watched every minute of the trial it appeared to me that everything was not presented it seemed. it's kind of when you send a text message to someone and they respond with a one word uh response you kind of well was that a good yay or was that a sarcastic yay and if they don't put the you know bracket that's sarcasm stupid
2: Uh, You don't know. I mean, how how do you address those kinds of issues? It actually wasn't even as ambiguous as that in the Ross Harris case. It was a flat-out admission that the police officers and the investigators lied when they put in the search warrant affidavit that Ross Harris had searched hot car deaths. He hadn't. They just... Uh, They just made that up. And to me, that's just an incredibly alarming thing that, you know, I mean, the jury was able to overlook it somehow. But that was one of the things that I think shaped public perception of the case more than anything else. And the fact that these officers were able to actually lie in, you know, a sworn document before a judge that formed the basis for arrests and, you know, searches being done in the case, you know, that's why – I know some people are going to think I'm a little hard on police sometimes, but there's just a lot of, a lot of bad behavior out there, and you can't have the debate about surveillance in a vacuum. We have to understand, you know, these are individuals making these decisions about, you know, what warrant to get, you know, what, uh, what, you know, what, how to respond to a subpoena. These are individuals making these decisions, and, you know, right now the institutional pressure is very much for, you know, if the government wants it, give it to them. If a defense lawyer wants it, nah, that's not as important. Well, and you know, you
1: you have the uphill battle of challenging the information, the data, because it's right there in front of you. How could it possibly be wrong? But as the folks in uh, that were highlighted in Cash's story on the geolocational, where even in Atlanta they had people showing up to their house saying find my phone says my phone is here and they're trying to explain no 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 but it's not how do you fight that uphill presumption in addition to everything else uh, is there are there things that the industry can do to develop or create or you know, ways that those who are making the technology can help uh, when when it gets used
2: well, that actually does make me think of a story. I have a friend who has been, had her, her car broken into and her very nice iPod stolen, and it has been pinging the Find My Phone at the same residential address for about three weeks now. She can't get police to be even remotely interested in it, which that has also been my experience when my car has been broken into and, you know, other property crimes have been committed. So I would say, first of all, you know, people don't need to worry about search warrants based on that stuff. You know, I sadly i i find that you know often law enforcement only seems to care about these property crimes when it provides them an entree into investigating you know a drug case or something that they see as a bigger fish so uh they they don't appear to be uh violating anybody's fourth amendment rights to get ipods back
1: well in you know i'm i'm thinking of all the friends i have who have these various devices i mean i know when you come into my home i've got uh Plastic over the, the cameras on different devices and things. Do I, as a homeowner, now need to put up a warning on my front door? Uh, Amazon Echo in use. Uh, say what you will, or uh, yes, this refrigerator is connected. Uh, open at your own risk. I mean, that was one of the examples in a recent story where it said, If you want to establish an alibi, show that the refrigerator, the IoT refrigerator, was opened and you know stuff rummaged through during the time of the murder. Uh, As a homeowner, do I need to worry about that, or do I need to ask my friends? before entering their home or doing different
2: things? Well, we haven't heard about the first civil suit based on somebody having information released on their friend's echo, so I'm I'm not sure about that yet. Uh, but I do think it's interesting that you know so much of our legal precedent on this issue is based on reasonable expectations of privacy. And as much as I'd love to say, oh well this is just, you know, modern judges corrupting it, nope, you know, that unreasonable language is right there in the Fourth Amendment, you know, that we shall be secure in our person's houses, papers, and effects from unreasonable searches and seizures. So what's unreasonable? And that, I think, is the question that's going to continue to evolve.
1: Well, it certainly is a changing landscape. I mean, on the one hand, I would love that my devices could corroborate my otherwise sad alibi of no, I was just eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream pints. Nothing sad about
2: that alibi. It sounds great. I,
1: exactly. But when they say can anyone even corroborate, it's going now. Now the dogs and I don't know that they can talk yet. Uh, but really where because you're involved both in the legal community as well as kind of the, I'd say community as a bigger picture not necessarily direct legislative but really the public discourse what if we're going to put on your crystal ball uh, fortune telling hat what do you see evolving from this in the next couple months in the next year where do you see 2017 heading with some of these issues
2: well, along with the crystal ball, do I also get a magic wand to uh, decide how public policy outcomes are going to happen? Of course, of course. Well, I think, you know, in in the ideal world, we look at this as, you know, well, this is an exciting opportunity. You know, sometimes it's going to help us catch bad people. Uh, Sometimes it could be used, you know, against good people. And the way to fix that is to reduce the role of government in our lives. You know, if you don't have government going after people for, you know, unimportant reasons, if you have them focused on legitimate public safety goals, I think there's going to be a lot less concern if, you know, there's a subpoena that you've got probable cause to investigate a murder, and you need some Alexa data to do that. So, so yeah, I that, know. that's my magic wand. There,
1: there you go. Well, thank you to Catherine. Thank you to Stephen for joining us earlier. Find Replays. Thank you to America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. Catch us next time on Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.